All right, good morning, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Proverbs 6 and 7, that will be our text this morning, Proverbs 6 and 7. While you're turning there, I'm going to go over some of the slides this Wednesday, at September 13th at 6. We'll have our meal, and then we're going to have our special service with Dennis Zeck, ministry, or ministry through mystery. Oldest kids classroom will be in. Other classrooms will stay out. And the reason being is it's not a magic show. It's really a teaching on false doctrine versus true doctrine and true teachers and false teachers, and it, the kids wouldn't be able to sit still and understand it anyway. So... Um, we're going to let them be blessed in the children's ministry and let the oldest kids' classroom come on in. You don't bring anything. Nope, nope, just come and eat. Uh, teen night, September 24th, uh, 5 to 8. They're going to be here. They're going to meet here uh, for bonfire and a hayride there. Life chain, coming up October 1st. That's a Sunday after second service. We'll meet at the courthouse between 2 and 3 or at 145 actually, and between two and three, we'll stand in protest against abortion. So for those who want to enjoy us for that, you're welcome to. We usually make up the bulk of the people that show up, So, uh, but some other churches show up as well, and, and uh, it's a good uh, event. Now, there are sometimes counter-protesters. If you've never done it before, we don't engage. It's a, a time of silent prayer and standing uh, against it publicly. Um, so uh, keep that in mind. There is no confrontation. There is no back and forth. Uh, whatever they do, they do. But you stand silently and, and with everybody else. So um, join us for that. We do it every year. We've done it for 20 plus years. So uh, men's breakfast, October 21st at 8, at 8 a.m. Join us for that. We'll have the food ready for you here. We'll be uh, discussing our Turning Point USA Calvary Chapel Maryville Faith Group. That's an awful long name. We need an acronym for that of some kind. Uh, and we'll just talk about that and how we're starting that. One of the things that we'll be talking about is our November 4th, we'll begin our first class. Um, it's a Saturday. It's an eight-week session of biblical citizenship. It's nothing more than that. Some people have asked a lot of questions. What's this turning point thing? And I don't know about just need to know what it means to be a biblical citizen here in the United States. And we'll talk about that. And there's other classes we'll do as well. But that's what we'll be discussing at the men's breakfast. And that's it. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, to receive it, to be changed by it. We pray that every Sunday. But God forbid, Lord, we should sit here and receive something and not let it change us from the inside out. So we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would work. Uh, we give you... Uh, access, open access to our lives, to our hearts, to our minds, to change us from the inside out, that we might be different, um, look more like your sons and daughters, um, to be a, a light and salt to this world, God. That's our heart, in Jesus' name, amen. As the writer of these wisdoms, <laughs> the Proverbs, we'll spend a lot of time, and this will be the last Sunday for this, for those who are worried about uh, the the harlot uh, talk all the time on Sunday mornings. This will be one of the few uh, remaining times that Solomon takes us through that, especially in chapter 7. Um, but it is something that needs to be discussed, and it needs to be talked about at least a couple times as we go through the Scriptures, because it is one of the main uh, downfalls of us as men and women, is uh, just uh, being sidetracked by that sin, and it is sin. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. And here's what you're supposed to do. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. It's that big of a deal when you become surety for somebody else. Now, it isn't really comparable to what we would say as a co-signer, as a parent for your kids. You can apply it that way if you want to use that to get out of it with your kids. That's fine. I'm, I'm sure that'll be fine. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about linking your future to somebody else's decision-making, really. And you really have to be careful about that. And he says, that, like a bird tries to get away from someone who's trying to catch it, and they frantically bat their wings and hit the glass or fly against the net, you know, or 
do the same if you find yourself in the position where you've linked your future to another person, even a stranger or a relative, makes no difference, or a friend, because it's a danger to you. You need to be responsible for your own financial health, is what he's talking about here, actually. When you link yourself to somebody else, that's fine. It's, you know, let's use that example of maybe being a co-signer for your child or something on a home. It is hard. It is hard to get started in life. And as a parent, I've never had a problem with helping my kids in any way I can and linking myself financially to their future. I don't put myself in such harm's way that it would make me destitute. I would never do that, which is what he's really talking about here, an open line of credit, basically. Um, to, to sign or to co-sign or to help your, your, your loved one out, just be prepared for them not to follow through on their promises. Accept that part of it, you know. And I'll give you an example of that at the end of this portion of Scripture with Philemon and Paul. Paul does that for, for Onesimus. Um, that being said, there's nothing wrong with helping out your kids. It's not anti-God to help your kids out in a tough situation financially, of course. When you, though, which is what he's talking about here, open up your life to financial ruin at the expense of someone else, what happens is they've found themselves in such a horrible situation that they need help. Fine, we want to open our hand wide to those but remember, that scripture that talks about opening up your hand wide to the poor means just giving, not becoming surety for somebody else, not becoming the collateral. Back then, you could be sold as a slave if they didn't follow through and you couldn't follow through. Well, guess what? You're working seven years for me for free. And that's not a good place to find yourself. And so the writer here is saying, stay away from that altogether. If you want to help somebody, there's other ways to do it. Scripture gives us permission, lots of other ways to help people out other than making your life attached to someone else's decision-making. It's a very dangerous place. Um, Along with that, you help them by not doing that for them, by not being that. Because the pressure that's on them from the poor choice that they've made, the poor decisions that they've made, to where they need you to be the, the surety for them, That pressure causes them, I mean, I think everybody, I'm not going to make this mistake again. You don't don't learn if you're always bailed out. And if you have a way of being bailed out, oftentimes that person says, well, I really don't have to worry about that. And the pressure's completely off now. I mean, they're going to take the brunt if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And and, in actuality, you could actually walk free and the person that's become surety for you becomes the person that has the burden placed on them. And so you're not doing that person any, any good for making future decisions. And so that's what he's saying. Now, with this Philemon and Onesimus, if you turn to the book of Philemon, verse 18, but if he has wronged you, Paul says, as he writes to this Philemon about this slave that's been run away, he has left his obligation, left his responsibility, has found Paul, become saved under Paul's teaching, And now Paul says, you've got to go get this next thing right. You need to go back to this Philemon, and you need to own up to the fact that you ran away from him. And so here's what he says to this Philemon um, about this Onesimus that's supposed to go back, this runaway slave. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. He's not becoming surety. He's saying, I'll pay you back. I'm literally just going to take over his debts for him kind of thing. And here's why he does it. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. So he had a little uh, something in the bank there with this Philemon. Okay, so you understand the point of this. To become, uh, to help, to uh, open your hand wide to the poor, by all means, never let any of these scriptures be taken out of context and out of the totality of scripture, okay? Because we can take the, aha, I don't have to be surety for anybody. Sorry there, guy with no food. I'm not going to become surety for you. That's your own problem. You've made your own poor financial choices, and you could use that all day long and walk around and not help a single soul in this world. No, you don't have permission to that to do that. God's word says otherwise. This is different. So hopefully we've made a a distinction there. Verse 6, 
Go to the ant, you sluggard, <laughs> which kind of goes along with one through five. Uh, <laughs> that's what you don't need to do for somebody to become surety. But here's what that sluggard needs to learn who got themselves into that tough spot. Go to the ant. Look to the ant. Watch the ants. I mean, even the ants is what he's getting at. Consider her ways and be wise, which have no captain, overseer, or ruler. Provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her fruit in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the, of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Poverty doesn't happen overnight. You can have events in your life that can truly change the trajectory of your what you th- where you thought you were going to go for sure, but um, there are some rules that we can follow, just some wisdom that we can follow. We, I looked this up because it came to my mind while I was studying. Do you remember the the jingle that came out? And probably some of you won't. You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You younger people don't. Um, um, you deserve a break today, right? McDonald's, 1971, and. <laughs> This is, this is not a true statement. This is, this is fabricated. I'm putting this together in my mind as we speak. But I was looking at this funny graph that showed, here's what it looks like in the United States as far as, as, far as um, crime and as far as uh, debt and all these things. And in 1965 or so, it just goes through the roof. Now, I'm blaming the McDonald's jingle for that. <laughs> Because what are they saying as, as the marketers who found people not wanting to spend nowadays $8 for your cheap meal at McDonald's? How do I get them to not go to Hy-Vee, for example, and buy their own fresh food and make it for themselves? What can we do to get them to not spend their $4 over there that'll feed six people, but to spend $8 with us that'll spend, you know, serve, feed one person? How do we do that? You deserve a break today. And in the moment of that break, you've spent twice as much money for one-fifth of the food and nearly zero the nutritional value that you would have gotten from the other place, you see. So that's the fall of the United States of America right there. Is that jingle, 1971 McDonald's, we can blame them. Further on in my deep study for this... McDonald's jingles, I went on to the next thing down on the Google list was, why was it that McDonald's needed to teach us that we needed to have self-care? I went, oh my goodness, you just took it a whole nother level. No, that's not self-care. That's absolutely horrible for you. Now, I'm not getting in a nutritional battle with anybody this morning. I'm saying, this is what it is. A little fold in the hands. Well, it was just one time, you know? Okay, now you have half as much money as you would have had at the end of the, at the, end of the purchase. And it, it doesn't come upon you suddenly. It's moments of self-care, of deserving a break, after deserving a break, after deserving a break, you find yourself in a place that when a true tragedy comes, washing machine fails, refrigerator goes on the blink, or brink or blink, what is the phrase? Don't care. When it breaks... You can't buy it because you spent all your money on your brakes. You see what I mean? You can't handle the life-impacting moments that, young people, listen, are going to happen to you. Your, your fridge will not run for 20 years anymore like it used to, or 50 years. They won't. They're, they have a one-year warranty for a reason. They're going to last you three, maybe. Or they're going to last you a year and a day, you know. And then we know this. So you plan for that. You've got to plan for those things. A good rule of thumb, if you're listening, if you're hearing, 75, 15, 10. And you can change that ratio, but that's a great place to start. 75%, that's where I live within my means. Everything, including entertainment and going out to eat and everything, is within 75% of my income. That is wonderful. 15% goes to investments, money that's going to make money for you, whether that's in stocks or whether that's in real estate or whether that's in whatever it may be, 15%. 10% then goes into an emergency savings. 75, 15, 10. Now, if you can change that ratio to make it 65 or 55, even better. Even better. 
But that's a good start. Well, I, I won't be able to do a lot of stuff. No, you won't. No, you won't. We live in a world where we think, we deserve, and that normality, I made that up, is spending everything and beyond what you make, and you should live that way. And that's normal, and that's just the way it is, and that's our stupid economy, and it's our stupid whatever that I can't do anything that I want. I just, I just, I just paycheck to pay. That's a choice. It's always a choice. So, a little slumber. It doesn't come upon you suddenly. It happens all. And there are times, there'll be seasons where it's summertime, and oh boy. See, I'm learning that as, as in my new other career that I have on the side. It's feast and famine. Sometimes it's summer. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to sell a lot of houses today, you know, kind of thing. And then November comes. Nobody wants to sell a house or buy a house. And then, and then December comes, and nobody wants to buy or sell a house. And then January and February, and then March and April, and then you get a little hopeful again, you know. It's like that. Now, as someone who's always worked for a paycheck every two weeks or every week, depending, you, you, it's hard to get used to budgeting, you know. No, you don't get to just do whatever you want because it isn't always going to be like that. There's going to be some... Some downtime in, in bee raising. See, I pulled that in there. That's another thing I do. I raise bees. Try to. I've killed more than I've raised. But, but in bees, there's something called a dearth. That's a time when they don't have access to everything they need to keep their hive going, you know, to full potential. And especially during the winter, that's a long dearth, so to speak, where they have to get all clustered up and sit together and keep themselves warm and just eaten off the resources that they've stored up. Now that kills you to get into the savings account. It kills you to think you've got to dive into that, but that's what it's for. That's why you do the 10% so you don't mess around with the 15%. You got that 10% that's able to, and if you've done that for a long time, it's, it, it takes care of you during the, the dearth in your life, which everybody will have. So take a look at the ant. Look at the bees. Look at the way nature operates. Look how God provides for them, but also there is a winter time for every one of them, but they've thought ahead and they've planned ahead and they've, they've lived their life accordingly. They don't live for pleasure, which is a very dangerous mindset. They don't live to consume. I, if you can drive by a Casey's, drive by the Casey's, you know. Drive by it. Don't stop, you know. Just go on by. You just saved yourself 15 bucks more than likely, you know. Every time you drive by one. Anyway, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually, he sows discord. He'll mention that again. Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly, suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. That's a poetic uh, uh, way of saying he hates seven things uh in hebrew poetry they build you know six things he doesn't like seven things he hates well he's never going to talk about six he's always going to talk about seven he just used it to build up okay so you get it these six things the lord hates yes seven are an abomination to him a proud look a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood october 1st will be standing against that It's an abomination to him. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. That's the second time he's mentioned that. Discord is a difficult thing. Let me start off with this. A worthless person and a wicked man. We live in a day and age where no one's worthless. No one is truly wicked. That's absolutely false. Wicked people are worthless people. They have no value to bring to society. They, they're only going to bring harm. They are worthless. You don't have to stay worthless. You don't have to stay wicked. But while you're being wicked, you're a worthless person. Wow, that's so shaming and so guilt. We could use a little more shame and guilt in this world. And here's what I mean by that. Because like Jesus takes away all my guilt and shame. He doesn't take away 
the fruit of your sin, which is guilt and shame, conviction, he takes away the sin that causes the guilt and shame. The guilt and shame are very much a part of justice. They're very much a part of the reason that we come to Christ. I feel guilty. I feel shame. I feel condemnation. I feel like I'm distant, separated from God because of my sin. That's what draws me to the saving relationship of Jesus Christ, who takes away my guilt and shame by covering over my sin, not by the us not being guilty or shameful over our sin anymore. We should. Sin is shameful. Sin breaks us guilty. You understand that? We, we, we get in this mood or this, 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 uh, this, this idea that church is just supposed to be this welcoming, guilt-free, shame-free, judgmental-free place. And I'm like, well, then what, what's left? <clears throat> we come to worship with thanksgiving and gratitude in our hearts, the one, Jesus Christ, who took my guilt and shame my sin upon the cross. So if I'm to be a guiltless, shameless church or a place where sin isn't spoken of or we're not talking about our our faults before the Lord, then we no longer need the Savior from those faults because those aren't faults anymore. We've now justified them. And so therefore we no longer need Jesus. And so therefore we worship nobody but ourselves when we show up. Thank God for me, a guiltless, shameless person who's never had anything no no that's we missed the point entirely and we make the gospel of powerless and of no effect when we do that no he's right a worthless person a wickless a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth that's not a value to anybody including the person that's doing it he winks his eyes shuffles his feet points the finger perversity the whole thing is he's sowing discord Stirring up the pot, stirring up problems and troubles and things like that. God says he hates that. I hate those who sow discord among the brethren, who stir up the pot, who whisper, who speak lies. In Psalm 127, 2, it is a vein for you to rise up. Oh, wait. I missed that. Verse 9, uh, Proverbs 26, 20. We'll get to it in a few weeks here, but Proverbs 26, 20. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no tail-bearer, strife ceases. It's the first thing you have to do when you put out a fire. There it is. It's burning. You have had a bonfire. Everybody's roasted their marshmallows. Hot dogs are cooked. It's time to go inside, but you can't leave this going. First of all, you've got to spread it out so that it either gets a lot of oxygen and burns up more quickly, or you're actually putting it out so that it can't have enough combined heat to keep everything going, and so you spread it out. And even then, if that doesn't work, then you need to you got to get the fuel out of it. Otherwise, it's going to keep burning. At times, there are blessed subtractions from churches. There just are. Sometimes, someone who is just, and that is what their goal is, to be the one who sows discord among brethren, to get groups to start splits, to get teams going in a church, by pointing the finger, by whispering in the ear, by telling stories, by did you hear and don't you know and all that stuff. Oh my goodness. God bless you. You know, that's a horrible thing. God hates that and he sees that. You think it's in secret. You think it's quiet. You don't think anybody knows, but it comes to the top. God exposes those things. And usually what it takes for a sower of discord in a church to leave or to stop it takes exposure, oftentimes. And so, when you hear this this morning, if you find yourself in that place where you could be and you don't realize it, the one who's sowing discord among the brethren, I'd encourage you to stop. Catch yourself. Pray. Pray that God would change your heart, because what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. You see? So if you change the heart, those things won't be a natural thing for you anymore. So God changed my heart that I don't have that desire to bring others down with my little stories or get my teams together to build me up, to bring them low, you know. Be careful about that. Guard yourself so that it doesn't have to be exposed, so it doesn't have to come to that place where, well, I can't fellowship anymore. My team doesn't ever get big enough, you know, kind of thing. It's a bad thing to have that. So avoid that sowing of discord in your heart. And so he's telling him, and avoid the people that sow discord. We've talked about that several times. 
You can't sow discord if no one's listening to you. The only way you can do that is if someone has ears. If you've got ears to speak into, otherwise it just goes out in the air. Nobody wants to sow discord in the middle of nowhere. They want people. They want souls to join them in these things. Guard yourself from that. It's just dangerous. It's just not healthy. Love, love covers a multitude of sins. Maybe someone deserves to have the finger pointed. Maybe a story really is juicy and should be shared, you know, kind of thing. But love covers over that, doesn't make a mention of that, doesn't point it out, doesn't get a team together, doesn't start with pitchforks and <laughs> torches. It's a dangerous thing. And this is from the dawn of time. This is nothing new. We all know this. Everybody's maybe experienced that in their own life. Someone talking about them or saying things that are untrue or even saying things that are true. Let's go that far. Maybe you did make a mistake. Well, maybe you did do something you shouldn't have done. Maybe there was a sin that you had to fess up before the Lord. That's between you and the Lord. And a brother and sister in the Lord who knows what it's like to sin against God and to have to confess the, who has removed the plank from their own eye understands the painfulness of the speck that's in yours and has no desire to broadcast to the world what they've done over there. The only reason people do that is because they're inadequate and they want to make themselves bigger than the person. Oh, you talk about how you're so great and so all this and all that. I know you. You know. And all of a sudden you're elevated and they're down. Oh, it's an ugly thing. It's ugly in the church, especially among the brethren. It's horrible outside in the world, but especially among the brethren. Verse 20, my son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. (laughs) Keep them. Don't forget these things. When you roam, when you go on, when you travel this world, that they will lead you. That's a parent's hope. That's their desire. I want to teach you everything you need to live out there. To the, the things I struggle with at my age, with my not with not struggle with my faith, but working things out, working doctrines out, working out scriptures and lining them up. And my all this, my kids are going to have to do all this too. I'm just I'm just ahead of them in some spots, you know, kind of thing. I want to teach them to be able to ask those questions boldly that they have about their faith and about Christianity, about the scriptures, and then also also know how to figure these things out, to work these things out. Because it doesn't matter how many doctrines I send them off with, there's going to be questions later on that I haven't touched upon, haven't instilled in them, or they don't remember that they're going to have to have the tools to work these things out. That's important for everybody. And so he's telling them, remember what I'm telling you. Steer clear of sowing discord. I don't have to tell you what not to say. I'm just saying don't sow discord at all ever. And you're going to save yourself and the world a ton of problems, a ton of headaches. So when you roam, this wisdom I'm giving you will lead you. When you sleep, They'll keep you. You can lay your head down at night. You don't have to go through all the things. Oh, I wish I hadn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, I hope I don't get found out about that. You'll be able to have a sweet sleep. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of the seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Now, this is when he moves into this, and we'll spend almost the, the, the remainder of our teaching today on this idea of adultery, fornication, however you want to put it. Both, actually. covers both. One is with a married woman or with a married man. One is without marriage, but still outside of the bounds of your marriage. So he will cover these things. Keep these commandments. It's a lamp. It's a light. In the dark world, when you don't know, the commands will give you light. You have to trust those things. You have to trust those things. You have to trust God's wisdom. I don't want to have to go through it and say, ah, you know, that, Paul mentioned that, you know, should, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? Well, no, of course not. I don't need to prove grace by sinning and say, see how much grace God has for me, how much mercy he has. No, no, no. We just avoid it. We can just know that grace is there. 
I don't have to exhaust his resources for me, you know. Same thing. Follow these precepts. Listen to my instruction. There'll be a lamp and a light, and you can avoid all these things. It's a reproof. Uh, It's an instruction for you. Verse 27, we've touched upon this in another chapter. Can a man take fire to his bosom or to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife, so this is adultery, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. It's amazing how many people go through those three verses and think, I think I can carry fire without getting burned. You know? I think I can walk on hot coals and my feet not be seared. You know that's not true, right? When you see them doing that over in the Far East, you see the hotbed of coals and the yogis getting their minds all straightened out so they can walk across and not get burned. It's not true. Several things have taken place in those stories. You don't ever get to the place where you have such enlightenment that you don't get burned by the coals you're walking on. That's not the case. You've either walked on them so many times that you can't feel it anymore. That's a possibility. Or you're so fast that it doesn't burn you as much as it would if you took your time and took a stroll and didn't like hustle across the coals. Either way, you're getting burned or you have been burned. And you're so calloused and hard about it that you don't realize that it's not my ability to rise above it's I'm so scarred and deeply wounded that I can't feel it anymore. I've killed the nerve endings. Guys, that's what sin does. Sin after sin dulls the sense, dulls the warning that keeps us from avoiding those things that are dangerous to us. And every time we give in to those things, it's a little easier. You can go a little closer. You can stand a little longer. You can hold it a little bit more. And every time you do that, become desensitized to the sin itself. You do get burned, but you get burned enough, you don't feel it anymore. Be careful of these things. The gospel is the same way, honestly. I get, I'm probably more concerned, not with the new believer that comes into our church, but with the ones that sit for decades and don't change. That's a concern of mine. How can you collect Sunday after Sunday after Sunday of God's word in your heart, through your ears, into your brain, and it not affect you. That's a very serious matter. Now, what do you do about that? You got to ask God to give you that sensitivity again, I think. That's the prayer you need to pray. How is it that I can tune out God's word in my life? How is it that I can listen to it and be unaffected or unconvicted? No shame, no guilt, no change in me at all. I'm, I continue to live my life as I did last week or in the week before and the week before without having it any effect. That's a concern. The gospel can, a rejected gospel or the rejected word of God can do that too. You can become desensitized to the word of God. We, oh, yeah. And, and what happens is people then take the, the, the act of sitting in a Bible study as the righteous work of God in their life, which is, is not the case. It's only the doing and the applying of God's word that you heard. That's righteous. The hearing of it and collecting a Bible study or another check mark or another whatever it is that you do in your mind, you, you would never make it that obvious, but you say, well, I went to church. I go to church. I hear that all the time. Yeah, I go to church. I don't care if you go to church. Yeah, yeah I, I read the Bible. I don't care if you read the Bible. I do, but... If it's not affecting, if it's not changing, if it's not alive and sharper than any two-edged sword in your life or in my life, then it's as bad as the sin. I've become inoculated. I've become used to it. It no longer has its effect on me anymore. I can walk through a Bible study in sin and feel no conviction whatsoever. That's a dangerous place. When Solomon, the writer of these wisdom Uh, notes for us, writes his other books. He talks about how everything under the sun is vanity. He comes to the conclusion that just nobody changes and nothing ever happens and everything under here just goes on as it's always gone on and nobody's any different. And that is true to the extent that we can't change ourselves. 
I can't. My discipline will change me for as long as my discipline can hold out. But then when my discipline fails, then I fall. And so I'm an unchanged person. Um, we used to call them uh, dry drunks, you know. I, I, I was an alcoholic, but I haven't drank in a year. Yeah, but are you changed and transformed in your heart, or are you a dry drunk? The drunk is still there. The ability, the desire, the want is still there. And if, the, if my discipline doesn't hold out, I fall back into the same old condition that I was that brought me to that place of becoming a, a sober person, you see. The prayer we all need to pray, and this is the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, and the difference between Christianity religion versus personal relationship with Jesus is the Holy Spirit comes into my heart and changes for me from the inside out, begins to renew a steadfast spirit in me, changes me. So it's no longer my discipline, it's a walking in the Spirit. And how to explain that any more than that, I don't know, but... Here's what I'm telling you to do. Monday, we're going to try harder is not the message for today. Sunday, I'm praying for God and his Holy Spirit to come into my life and change me from the inside out. I acknowledge my sin before you, whatever that is. I confess it before you. I know my weakness. I know I can't. My discipline fails as well as every other area of my life. It's just another area of failure in my life. So God, you need to come in. I will do my part. I will stay away. I will avoid the paths. I will not go there where I know it. You know, I'll do the part, but you're going to have to take the desire out of my heart and change me from the inside out to remove this from it. That's a prayer we need to all pray constantly. Now, Paul says that I carry around this dead man with me wherever I go. I reckon the old man dead, but boy, he doesn't lay down on the altar for very long. He seems to keep getting up. So I reckon him dead. It's only when we get to know Jesus personally, when we live forever with him in heaven, when we die, when we're in the life everlasting, that that dead man doesn't rise up anymore, isn't a contender for my throne in my life. But to change from the inside out is something that only God can do, which is what broke Paul, which is what broke Luther, to be honest with you. Which, which was, it's not just those two guys. It needs to break everybody. The whole idea of, of them, I'm going to and we're going to and we're going to really go get them and do better. And it's, it's, it's an inward work. I, I cannot murder. I cannot commit adultery. I can do all these things, even though Jesus expounded upon those and said, if you hate and if you look, you're still guilty of those two commandments, breaking those two commandments. When Paul got to the one, I, I don't want you to... Um, Covet, thank you. Covet, he says. I I don't know how to I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to change that because that's something in the heart. That's something I I don't ever show anybody anyway. I don't walk up and say coveting today. You know, I'm going down to the coveting store. You, nobody knows it. It's just happening. Paul says, what do I do about that coveting? How do I stop coveting? That's what broke him. Of all the commandments, thou shalt not covet. Broke Paul the most religious guy in the New Testament, the most religious guy in the New Testament realized that it was a heart problem. It was not a walking down the street day to day, avoiding sin problem. It was a heart issue that I can't tackle. That's only by the Holy Spirit. And that's when he knew that he didn't have the relationship with God. He came to God based off his own good works, off his own discipline, off his own ability to avoid and to look righteous and to be righteous according to the law. But the coveting, I don't know how to get rid of that or to pay for it. I don't know how to do it. Verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. So he's making a comparison here. 31 and 30, or 30 and 31 are going to compare to someone who commits adultery in their heart or actual. A thief can make a way back. 
It may cost him everything in his house, but there is a path back from stealing. I got to restore sevenfold. I took a loaf of bread. It's satisfied. But the loaves of bread that I have back now that I've been caught have to all go to that person. I can't just pay them a loaf back. They get sevenfold back, even if they're hungry, by the way. Stealing for hunger is not allowed. That you can recover from. But, verse 32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. You don't recover from that. Can you be forgiven for that? Yes, that's not what he's talking about. You don't recover from that. There is no way to walk away from that transaction and say, I know I did it once. You can do it seven times. We're even Stephen. No. The damage is done and it's not repairable. You can be forgiven. It can be overlooked. Those are all possibilities, of course. But the damage doesn't get repaired, you see. So dangerous. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. You don't have enough stuff in your house to make up for what you just did to him. Or to her. I don't want to leave anybody out here. Many people think of David as the man who slayed Goliath. As a pastor, all I can think about is Bathsheba for the most part with him. I often think about that. I think it's an important thing for every pastor to think about. Any man of God who wants to do the will of God needs to think about Bathsheba. Because David was the greatest guy in the world until then. He almost didn't need Jesus until then, by the way. Think about that. Why does God make that such a a profound portion of David's life? I mean, because it got worse to worse, that story. Well, it's because if he didn't tell that story about David, some might think, well, David is a type of Jesus, and he never, you know, no, no, no. No, David needed Jesus. He needed the saving that was going to come through his loins as well. David is a great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, by the way, if you didn't know. He's going to need that Savior also one day. And so the Bible is honest about heroes of the faith. None of them are on a pedestal so high that they didn't get knocked off. Every one of them has something that needed to be forgiven about them. You see, it's a very important story. It's in 2 Samuel 12. You don't need to turn there. I just wanted you to note it and maybe read the whole chapter so you understand that David, who killed lions and bears who killed Goliath, who was the greatest king Israel's ever seen, was also the man who committed adultery with Bathsheba, who brought her husband home from the battlefield just to get him to go into his wife so that the sin wouldn't be discovered because she became pregnant. And then when that didn't work because of Uriah's honesty and character and honor, he's so honorable, he sends Uriah to the front of the battle to be killed so that Bathsheba is now available and then it can be everybody knew. The shame was there. Nobody could recover from that. The nation of Israel at the height of their reign or prowess in the world was brought low by the one, by the one thing. There's enough loaves of bread to recover from that. David was never the same. His sons never looked at him the same. Who knows how they were walking? Maybe that's where Solomon got his ideas from, by the way. You know, his mom was, right? It's a tough thing. I think we better stop there because we have communion. I was going to do seven today, but I don't think we can make it. Let me finish up here. Verse 35, he will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. It's so important. These things can't be repaired. The damage is done. They can be forgiven, like I said, but there is no way to undo that, you know, to restore. So and that's where we'll close this morning, and we'll have a time of communion. And next week will be the last time we talk about 
the harlot, and so on. Thanks, Rod. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul teaches the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. That's what this is called, the Lord's Supper. He says, first of all, when you come together as, I'm going to start way back. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In other words, that shows who's tares and who's wheat. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So the Corinthian church is being corrected about their love feasts or their times of communion together. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is what the Lord showed me. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or die. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world." Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Paul warns us of eating in an unworthy manner. And that's not sin, of course. That's unconfessed sin. That's an understanding that I don't need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I simply do this because it's a ritual that makes me feel better every Sunday or whenever we come together and do this. And that's an unworthy way to eat the Lord's Supper. The worthy way is to judge yourself. To understand that when I eat and drink this, this represents the cross. The broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus for my sins. Not just the sins of others, but for mine. And when I eat and drink, with that understanding, with judging myself, I won't be judged because I've now placed upon the cross, symbolically, my sins. He's taken them away from me. I no longer have the guilt and shame that were associated with my sins because Jesus has taken my sins upon himself and paid the penalty for my sins. That's eating and drinking in a worthy way. And God calls us to that this morning. To discern the Lord's body, to understand what it means Why did he die on the cross and for what? For my sins. That's the worthy way. 
So we'll take some time this morning before we eat and drink together, taking a moment to eat and drink together, just like he says. I'm probably too literal, but to maybe just meditate before the Lord, to think on things, to confess things we need to confess, to get things out in the open between us, to get right with God before we come to this table so we truly are eating in a worthy manner, understanding what it is that he did for us and appreciating it with thanksgiving when we eat and drink. So let's take a few seconds here, maybe 30 seconds, and we'll we'll do that. We thank you for this morning and this opportunity to remind ourselves of our need for the cross, but also the the complete work of salvation done at the cross. We are innocent in your eyes. We have no more guilt, no more shame. All of our sins have been passed on to you, and you've paid the price for those. And it's been done, and it's completed, and it's finished, as you said. So we're very thankful for that this morning. We're thankful that you died on the cross for our sins, that you loved us so much that you did that. So this morning when we eat and drink, we do it in honor of you, in respect of you, in in understanding of what it cost you and what we received from it. Forgiveness, mercy, grace, everlasting life, Lord. So Lord, we love you and we honor you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you watching online, and you can do this with whatever you have in your fridge, it doesn't make any difference, but so you know, we will have the table set out tomorrow, um, and you can come grab a, a juice and a bread, we'll have it out here, it'll be here in the sanctuary right here, and the doors will be open, you're welcome to come in and, and have this time also if you'd like to do that, just so you know, that's always available the Monday after thank, or after communion time that we do this, so... Let's pray and we'll close here. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and wonderful wisdom if we'll follow it. Lord, help us to to heed. As the writer said, we're going to bind it around our necks. We're going to walk around with this and it's going to guide us and lead us and we trust you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your love to give us the truth. Help us to now walk in that truth. Lord, uh, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ready?